What is up, Bitcoiners? It's CK. This is another episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I sat down with Eric Wall. I consider him to be one of the most thoughtful and intelligent critics and skeptics in the Bitcoin space. He's not a Bitcoin skeptic. He's very much a Bitcoin bull. But I think that he brings a very critical and thoughtful take on a lot of the aspects and narratives in the Bitcoin community. Uh, we dig into Ethereum and DeFi. We dig into the stock to flow model. We talk about what is wrong with Lightning, how Bitcoin is going to scale, how Bitcoin fits into the greater cryptoscape, and a lot of other opinions that Eric has to share with our audience. Before we get into this awesome show, I want to tell you guys about the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, June 4th and 5th. Whale Night, our VIP day, is on June 3rd. There's going to be an entire week of fun activities leading up to the conference in Miami. We have approval from the mayor. We are going to lock down the venue, if not already. And you guys, we have Bitcoin Magazine has a special coupon for you all. Promo code all caps Satoshi. That's promo code Satoshi in all caps. That's going to get you 10% off your Bitcoin 2021 ticket. And you can see Anthony Scaramucci, Jack Dorsey, Nick Zabo, many of the mover and shakers in very different aspects of the Bitcoin ecosystem, all at Bitcoin 2021, as well as all of your favorite Bitcoiners. It is going to be an amazing party. Matt O'Dell is calling it the 200K party. And uh, yeah, with Bitcoin mooning, it could probably get there. So don't miss out on the fun at Bitcoin 2021. All right, that is enough from me. Let's get right into this fantastic conversation with Eric Wall. Bitcoiners, I am sitting across from a friend and a, a nuanced thinker in the space, a Bitcoiner who doesn't always kind of agree with uh, the status quo narrative in the Bitcoin community. I'm sitting across from the one and only Eric Wall. Welcome to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, Eric. Thank you so, so much for hosting me. Glad to be on. So, Eric, you know, we, we've met in Riga. You have come on to Bitcoin Magazine to debate Stock to Flow against Pierre Richard for having live stream. I would say that you're, you are a true Bitcoiner, someone who understands Bitcoin, but you are willing to kind of take an alternative take, have done a lot of research into Ethereum and DeFi as well as other blockchains. Uh, why don't you kind of introduce yourself and maybe, you know, frame your mental model for the space? Uh, right. Actually, I um, I asked the the question to um, my Twitter followers a while ago whether or not I am to be considered a shitcoiner, and I said that's not for me to decide. And I I plugged uh, Peter McCormack into the conversation. I said, "What do you think, Peter? Am I a shitcoiner?" And he said, "Yeah, you're a shitcoiner, but you're a good one." Uh, so I suppose you know the things that I that I do that separate me from traditional Bitcoin maximalists would be that I do entertain the idea that there could be innovation outside of the siloed Bitcoin sphere that is worth paying attention to. And I think that I have found evidence of that. For example, one of the things that I like to talk about are different layer two constructions that can be constructed if the layer one virtual machine or the layer one programming language was more expressive and had other tools to interpret and store data. And I think that so one of the things that probably earns me the most heat when discussing with other maximalists is that I think that the rollups, the layer two constructions that are being developed on top of Ethereum uh, do have value and that they are interesting. But put me into context, I discovered Bitcoin in around 2012. I was studying computer science at the time, and I decided around 2014, 2015 to specialize my uh, academic degree towards blockchain technology. So I, I, I took a, I, I, did, I wrote my master's thesis on blockchain technology from from a computer science perspective, and then I worked for a traditional fintech broker that built exchange and clearing technology for layer one exchanges and clearinghouses. So we built exchange, uh, we we built technology technology for the uh, London Metal Exchange, the Australian Security, Securities Exchange, the Japanese clearinghouses, the Brazilian clearinghouses, and I joined that company as sort of the cryptocurrency guy. And during my time there, I delivered a solution to, to Bitstamp. Bitstamp is now a customer of that technology stack. So Bitstamp runs the same matching engine that the London Metal Exchange runs. But shortly after that, Nasdaq acquired the company. 
And I was, it was up to me to decide what I wanted to do with my career. And I knew that what most people were requesting for me within this space was like, how do I get an exposure to the cryptocurrency market that is not exclusive to Bitcoin, but sort of can facilitate a, more, a broader exposure, but without sort of being foolish enough to think that Bitcoin is going to fail and the real innovation of the cryptocurrency industry lies outside of the uh, Bitcoin protocol. I'm a sort of a you know an altcoin critic, an altcoin skeptic, and I think that puts me in a position where I can maintain a broader exposure to the cryptocurrency market, but that, that doesn't lead me astray in that sense that I'm going to put 20% of the uh, capital of a portfolio into something like IOTA or something like NEO or something like EOS and hinging my career and my bets on on these very speculative and unproven and untested protocols. So yeah, that's and the, the role that I take in the industry is that I you know I see myself as a Bitcoiner and I take all the knowledge and learnings from the Bitcoin industry and then I apply that learning to these other protocols and I test them and I and I and I vet them by the scrutiny that a Bitcoiner would apply when we look at other protocols. So for example, uh, Stop and Decrypt, he recently plugged me into a thread. He wanted to know whether the uh, TurboGeth client, which is a new client that is, has been developed to deliver higher performance performance when syncing the Ethereum chain. And he wanted to know whether the TurboGeth client can be considered a full node. And there were a lot of people that were, com that were commenting in that thread. And he said, well, I need Eric to, to, to answer this question for me because Ethereum people have lost the plot and they don't really know what constitutes a full node. And he wanted to answer to be answered by somebody that understands that by his standards and what he defines as a full node and what he defines as full validation, would I classify TurboGeth as a full node client? And being somebody that understands his perspective and his side of things, but it also experiments with all these other, other tools. I think that's sort of how I fit into the broader conversation that, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Bitcoiner that you can rely on that, that will scrutinize other projects to the level uh, that is required to, to really address some of the more critical issues around these protocols. I really like that introduction. And I, I would, t I tend to agree because you, you have kind of done the research on the altcoins that the majority of Bitcoiners haven't done. A lot of Bitcoiners kind of have blanket platitudes towards other chains. And personally for me, you know, I've, I've done POV crypto. I have worked a lot with a good friend, David Hoffman. So I, I think I have a little bit more of an insight into what's kind of going on in Ethereum land and alt land. But um, at the same time, absolutely a Bitcoiner, you know, Bitcoin is the king until you show me something, you know, that actually improves on it. So yeah, I, I, I kind of fall in a similar place. Yeah, I enjoy that uh, show a lot because it doesn't. It seems like no matter how much you and David discuss the differences between the two of you, you're never going to change your fundamental positions. You're always going to be a Bitcoiner, and he's always going to be an Ethereum. And you share these views with each other, and you you debate these topics constantly. But at the end of the day, you're sort of solidified solidified within your own tracks and. I don't know if the podcast just leads to more contempt uh, for one another's opinions, or but at least you get a, you get you get exposure to what these other ideas are, and you sort of get to know what they're talking about. So that I think for someone like you to maintain your position that you're you're a diehard Bitcoiner still, at least you you've paid attention and you've you've really took uh, taken in like the full arguments of what the Ethereans are saying. And I think that's really valuable. Like, if you want to be in the space and have valuable opinions, then you need to at least have a way to address these other topics and and other arguments that are coming from other sides of the industry. So I think that's really valuable, and I hope that you guys continue with the podcast. Yeah, no, we absolutely have. It's more. I think we're moving more to a noted style, where it's kind of just like the second or third thing that we do when we can, but. We used to try to monetize POV, but now we're both, you know, very busy doing lots of content. So it's just hard to, you know, have a content hobby when your job is content. Um, but David and I actually went snowboarding last weekend uh, up in Utah. So we we absolutely hang out and we just didn't even have the energy to record a POV. So we're going to get to it. But, you know, I think based, you know, 
I've, I think I've learned a lot about the narratives in the Ethereum space. And, you know, I actually have a much more open mind to that ecosystem because I personally think it is built on Bitcoin. Like, I think Bitcoin enabled this permissionless, capitalistic, you know, financing to happen. And, you know, the Ethereum Foundation got started by selling an idea and token for Bitcoin, right? Like, it it literally could not have happened if Bitcoin was not money, it was not a means to settle value in, in a trustless fashion. And... I still think that Bitcoin, its true nature is permissionlessness, and you literally cannot stop someone from using it in the right or wrong way. So I think tokens, you know, Bitcoiners might hate them and say that it's absolutely the wrong way. But the whole point of Bitcoin is you can't stop them from using it, even how much you hate it. So that is the point. They kind of prove that Bitcoin is itself working. So I do kind of have a more open mind there. But I also think from an investment perspective, if you don't understand where Bitcoin fits in the stack, like you're eventually going to get wrecked. Right. And I think probably a logical extension of that uh, line of thought is to perhaps think of Ethereum, like the way that I've tried to describe Ethereum to Bitcoiners who just refuse to get it is to, I mean, you can just describe it as a, a sidechain to, you can you could describe Ethereum as a sidechain to Bitcoin, where you can do... Economically, it is. Economically, uh, it is. And you could also describe it as a decentralized way to achieve what People, I mean, what what most people want to do with Bitcoin still is to speculate and to borrow it out to earn a yield. Um, and most of those things for Bitcoiners, we do those in centralized exchanges. But you can, with synthetic Bitcoin derivatives, do the same thing and still benefit from having an open, permissionless type of platform where you can build those tools. So I think, you know, I think of Ethereum as this place where you can take, if you want to, you can take your Bitcoin there. And you can do these BitMEX type of activities that many Bitcoiners enjoy. I mean, many Bitcoiners enjoy to loan out their Bitcoins or to trade derivatives on Bitcoins, to buy options, to leverage up their Bitcoin exposure. And you can do all those things on Ethereum using more more decentralized. Well, I perhaps I would go too far to say that all those tools on Ethereum are decentralized. But what they are is like, if you go to BitMEX and you try to leverage the financial products that are on there, all those tools are going to be developed by BitMEX. And that sort of creates a silo where innovation is fundamentally limited to to what the BitMEX company can provide. Whereas in Ethereum, you have all sorts of teams that are developing different tools, different solutions. And using a web browser, you can access all those tools directly from your MetaMask plugin. So I think thinking of Ethereum as this wild playground where you can access wider array of of more diverse a more diverse set of products than than you can in a in a, in a permissioned environment. I think that's interesting and valuable, and I think that you're gonna miss out on a lot of fun if you just blanket ignore this entire space. Yeah, again, I think the the key here is understanding the positioning of the DeFi ecosystem to Bitcoin, right, in the monetary stack. And yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I see DeFi and Ethereum is the mother of all exchanges, and its key feature is that it is permissionless. And that's why people like the bucket shops, because, you know, they want to just use an email address and a password and get access to this stuff. And so the no KYC permissionless aspect like that's the key. And as long as it can continue to provide that to the big whales who can take advantage from all the seniorage that's provided from token printing, like it's going to continue to have activity. For sure. Yeah, definitely agree. So let's pivot a little bit. I want to talk about Bitcoin more exclusively. Like I said, I introduced you. You you don't buy into the, the typical narratives, right? Been critical about Lightning. I mean, I would like to hear about that. But even more famously, I think you've been critical of the stock to flow model. Can you break down in the most like simplified way, like your first principle thinking on why this model doesn't pass your muster? Mm, I think that anybody that's tries to, with a simple mathematical formula, predict what the price of Bitcoin is going to be in the future will be fundamentally misled. I don't think that that's something that you can, I mean, 
it's i mean it's 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 a it's a it's a scarce good that trades on the open market the 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 supply of bitcoin and the fluctuations around how the supply changes over time is a minuscule factor in comparison to the broader development which is how bitcoin is being perceived in the world how many people are looking for bitcoin exposure and it's those factors that ultimately are going to decide what the price is going to be i mean when you have when you have unlimited fluctuations on the demand side of an asset and highly constricted fluctuations on the supply side of an asset then it naturally follows that the demand variations can have more impact because i mean they can they can they can fluctuate and they can vary much much more and i think it's kind of ridiculous to say that that the stock to flow sets a price floor or a limitation in like how far the price could go down for bitcoin because i mean there is a theory that because bitcoin is mined by proof of work it's fundamentally different from other altcoin assets when it comes to its value but that sort of would follow the labor theory of value i mean you you, you can't say that bitcoin is going to have a fundamentally different value profile than other assets just because it took work to produce that asset ultimately the 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 value of bitcoin could could go to zero next week next month next year if people just lose interest in it and that could happen for a number of reasons i mean that could what could happen is just uh, that something else comes along that people value instead and then the price of of bitcoin would go to zero and we've had we've had such models in the past where I mean, it's very easy to take a mathematical formula and you do a, a logarithmic regression on the historic price, and then you make a future a future extrapolation from that data, and you say that well, Bitcoin is going to follow this trajectory in the future, and that that that's the whole reason why I popularized the rainbow chart to make people aware that it's not difficult when you look at the logarithmic logarithmic price development of bitcoin and you set it very very widely so you allow for fluctuations that can so that bitcoin you, you, you allow the price to go up 10x and go or go down 90% and it still wouldn't fall out of your fundamental prediction of what the price uh, is going to be if you have that wide if you have such a wide span for what you think the price of bitcoin is going to be and your fundamental trajectory is just that the price of bitcoin is going to go up then the rainbow the uh, a chart like the rainbow chart is going to have equal predictive power as something like the stock to flow model and i mean the the the, the rainbow chart has successfully been delivering on this exact premise since 2014 so you can look at it in the data if you just make a a, a price prediction that says the price of bitcoin is going to go up and this is the confirmation span that i'm willing to accept then you know you're going to be right because bitcoin is fundamentally it's fundamentally awesome it's uh, the first time that we have invented digital scarcity and we are going to see investments of uh, we're going to see massive of, uh, amounts of capital getting deployed to this asset and it's going to increase rapidly over time and it doesn't matter if you use a rainbow or if you use a stock to flow model to to make that prediction as long as your prediction is up and your 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 confirmation span is very wide it's very likely that you are going to be proven correct. Now, in order to make an assessment whether or not the fundamental stock to flow model is correct or not, then you would have to have you would have to have a strong fundamental fundamental basis for the reasoning and assumptions that you make around causality. And the way that the stock to flow proponents have tried to address this issue is by demonstrating through quantitative methods proving that there is a causal causal relationship but ultimately i mean all all those causal uh, causal models that people have tried to uh, apply to the stock to flow model by showing that you know uh, you, you can statistically in, in a few a few years ago they tried to prove it using the cointegration test ultimately it was proven that the cointegration test that was applied was uh, applied incorrectly so that didn't hold water and the 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 main quant Nick Emblow, who devised that test, he has still been trying to devise other formulas for testing the the relationship between the Bitcoin price and the uh, stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin. And he just recently, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, he 
he came with a sort of final conclusion that if you if you if you filter out the autocorrelation that you see so autocorrelation is basically the property where you you will you will you will have false positive you have a false positive indication from the correlation that you see based on the property that you are witnessing the two time series that both of them are increasing over time so the stock to flow is increasing all is increasing over time all the time the price of bitcoin is also increasing uh, over time and if you sort of remove the element that both of these series are fundamentally upwards pointing and you look at only the correlation after you filter that out and Nick Emblow applied this test then he discovered that there was no there was no significant correlation between the variations in the stock to flow and the price of bitcoin so i think that there is no i think that you know there is no quantitative or statistical basis to say that the stock to flow ratio has a decisive impact on the bitcoin price i mean the only thing that is valuable with the whole stock to flow theory is the ident- identification that an asset an asset uh, is unlikely to be a successful store value unless it has a high stock to flow i mean if you look at gold and you look at real estate fundamentally these are assets that you cannot inflate the supply of uh, willy-nilly so that's sort of the fundamental analysis and 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 contribution that the stock to flow model makes that it is not possible to have an asset that where the where their supply is increasing very rapidly and still have a high value and i and i agree with that notion but to think that you can with small fluctuations in that ratio predict the price of bitcoin is ridiculous because i mean we ha- we can do the same we can do the same type of analysis on gold we have years and we have decades and decades of data on gold and you can look at the stock to flow ratio of gold and you can tr- and you can try to see can we using these small fluctuations in the stock to flow ratio of gold see that the value of gold was driven by these small variations and you could not i mean the what what you can see is that gold is highly valued and the stock to flow ratio of gold is very high but you cannot see that the small variations on the surface of that is what is driving the price so quantitative quantitatively speaking there is no evidence for the stock to flow model and just thinking about it rationally uh, you cannot come to that conclusion either and looking at other historic examples of sim- of similar assets you cannot come to that conclusion either so i think you know there's there are many reasons to to sort of refute the idea that stock to flow would would Let me me just jump in here, Eric. So I'm I'm a Bitcoin propagandist, if you will. And basically, based on what you're telling me is that the stock to flow model and graph is just really good Bitcoin propaganda. Like directionally, it's correct. Bitcoin good number go up. And it pretty much just put that meme into a really fancy chart that is understandable to a lot of people. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. And I also think that popularizing the stock to flow notion as something like if you, if you i mean for me it's helpful to sometimes talk about the stock to flow ratio of bitcoin i never talk about it as a predictor of the price but i talk about it as a fundamental property that sets bitcoin apart from other assets in the world so i think that it's very good for the meme of bitcoin but i think if you really think that you're going to that this formula is going to produce some type of magic relationship that is always going to hold and i mean you're, you you can might you you're you're just going to be just as well off using the rainbow chart and i think the rainbow chart is more welcoming to people who <laughs> recognize the notion that you can get lost in weeds with these uh, fancy mathematical models but at the end of the day what you want to see is the price going up you want to have some sort of range that tracks whether or not it is still going up in the trajectory that it has in the past so i think uh, I think if that's what you want, just a good meme for the price of Bitcoin going up. I mean, the stock, the the, the rainbow chart is also uh, contrib- like it's also performing tremendously in that category. <laughs> I I recently went to um, I looked at the Swedish the, the local forums that I have here in Sweden where they discuss the price of Bitcoin, and I, I and I looked at the top thread there, and the top thread was discussing. Uh, a person that made the argument that Bitcoin is going to reach $100,000, and this was a couple of weeks or months ago that he made this argument, and he had two he had two charts that he based this prediction on, and the first one was the rainbow chart. The second one was the stock to flow model, 
And I looked Let's through. Let's go. The thread. Yeah. So I looked. I looked through that thread. I looked through it, and I wanted to see if people saw any clear separation between the stock to flow model or in the rainbow model. And I mean, to to retail investors, to most casual observer observers of the space. There is no, I mean, it doesn't matter that much if it's the rainbow chart or the stock to flow model. So I think that if you want to meme Bitcoin successfully you, for the broader masses, we can do it just as well with the rainbow chart. We don't need to use the stock to flow model uh, for that purpose. Well, I have to say that Bitcoin and Bitcoiners propagate the best propaganda. So uh, I am very bullish on Bitcoin propaganda in general, whether it's the rainbow chart or the stock to flow model. And guess what? When the stock to flow model breaks to the upside, they're going to be saying that we predicted this as well. So have no fear. Bitcoin propaganda will rule. So I want to talk about lightning now, right? So again, personally, I'm actually like I, I have kind of like been uninterested in lightning and now through the development of applications like Strike and LastBit and many other kind of service providers who are using Lightning as an interoperable payment layer, I'm starting to, you know, kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Can you kind of talk about, you know, your opinion of Lightning? I don't think it's fair to even compare Lightning to rollups. They don't achieve the same thing whatsoever. I just want to talk about Lightning specifically. Well, I do, I do think that there is a fundamental value in payment channels in Bitcoin, because if you don't have payment channels and you want to make a transaction in Bitcoin, then you are sort of fundamentally restricted to wait for the blockchain to confirm your transaction. But a payment channel can, you, you can pre-commit what types of transactions that you want to make, and then you can sign uh, you can update can update your channel balance using a using a signed transaction and you can move assets that way and i think that's fundamentally valuable and i think that could be a way for people for instance to have the ability to have their funds away from an exchange and then instantly de deposit them to the exchange using payment channels and, the, and that's the same uh, payment channels i think is the uh, fundamental quality that makes strike interesting so that you can move Bitcoin instantly from one place to the other. That's what I think that Strike fundamentally uses. But Lightning is a much, much bigger system than just payment channels. Lightning is the idea that we can take payment channels and put them together in this awesome mess of different links. And then that the that, that uh, mess of interconnected payment channels is going to be a useful system for transferring value. And I think that the problems that Lightning has, if we're if we think about not using parts of the Lightning system, like the, I think that we are going to see, we are going to see people use uh, parts of. I mean, if you if you're just using a part of the Lightning system, like you're just using it to instantly transfer funds into an exchange, then you're just you're 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 pretty much just using a payment channel functionality. But Lightning, in the way that it's been the way that it's been sold to the mainstream Bitcoin audience, is that this is how we are going to make transactions with Bitcoin in the future. But the the, the limitations that I see with Lightning is that, well, first first of all, I don't think that it's clear yet what type of fees that you will pay when you're using Lightning. I don't think that I mean most Bitcoiners are still in the sort of world where. Lightning transactions are going to be free, but most Lightning developers don't think that Lightning transactions are going, going to be free. And uh, when you when you pay for a Lightning transaction, uh, the fee is going to be dependent on how large your transaction is. So if you make a very large transaction in Lightning that requires a lot of liquidity, that transaction fee could potentially be higher than a regular Bitcoin, like an on-chain, main-chain Bitcoin transaction. Because main chain Bitcoin transactions, they just uh, you're charged based on how much uh, bandwidth you're using. You're, you're charged on how much block space you're using. Whereas Lightning, you're you're always going to be charged on how much liquidity that you that you. They actually, I think they have a nice symbiotic relationship, right? Blockchain, like you said, the blockchain is about how much bandwidth it takes, versus Lightning is about like how how valuable it is. So I think that they'll be kind of like a you know a nice relationship where. If it's kind of getting outpriced on Lightning, then it makes sense to just go on chain, but otherwise use Lightning, you know, theoretically. 
Yes, that's true. But the the thing that I take issue with is whether or not we should really think of Lightning as something that is going to facilitate transactions. Like if all all, all Bitcoin wallets are they going to be Lightning enabled wallets, and is that how we're going to do Bitcoin transactions? Then I'm not so sure because you you do have. I mean, what I was talking about now that's just the first that's just the first problem of Lightning, right? That you pay based on how uh, much value that you're trying to transfer. The other problems are that it's very difficult to reach a high level of privacy using the Lightning protocol. When I came to the Lightning conference in Berlin in 2019, it just took a couple of days of thinking up various privacy attack, attacks on the privacy of Lightning for me to convince myself that there are fundamental issues with the Lightning protocol in terms of privacy that are going to be really difficult to to address and i haven't seen the, the 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 problems that i brought up there the different attacks that i brought up there there have have still not been any concisive evidence that have led have led me to reconsider that position in, in any way can and you then, mention a couple of the attack vectors on privacy yeah so i mean it it's it starts with like in if, if you want to have a good access to the lightning network then you are sort of forced to connect to uh, well other well connected nodes so you're not going to be you're not going to access the lightning network from just out of nowhere you're going to have to connect to one of the one of the uh, hearts of the lightning infrastructure one of the core pieces of the lightning uh, infrastructure nodes so there are going to be nodes where you have a very established relationship with there are you, where you are going to funnel most of your transactions through those specific nodes and the amounts that you pay are clear, are in clear text i mean it's it's completely visible the amount that you are uh, which which amount you are paying if you're funneling if i'm connected to you and i'm, pro- I'm, I'm and i'm pushing all my transactions through you then you are going to be aware which amounts that i'm trying to push through the lightning system and then you can, if you are a merchant in the system somewhere, then you will also be aware which amounts that I am pushing through the Lightning system. So you'll have some people that will be aware which uh, amounts, uh, you'll have some people that will be aware what types of transactions that you are sending uh, through the Lightning network at its ignition. And then you'll have other merchants that will see where those transactions eventually end up. And all it takes is for some of these fundamental liquidity providers in Lightning and the merchants to get together to sort of map out which users are which users in the in the system are making which transactions. The only way that you are going to get around this these analysis that you can that you can sort of cross map where payments are originating from to where they end up is by using zero knowledge proofs. That's the only technology that we have that can fundamentally anonymize the amounts that we're paying. And there are ways that we can leverage that in using blockchain technology. I mean, Zcash is one in, uh, instantiation of that, but you can also use the same type of crypt- cryptography to build. You could build uh, a lightning system that uses uh, zero knowledge proofs instead. There is uh, something called Bolt, the Bolt protocol where they use that type of crypt- uh, cryptography. And Ethereum, in Ethereum, they are going to be using zero knowledge proofs to provide anonymity as well in their layer twos. It's what's going to happen there. So I think that we're going to see different protocols that provide better privacy than Lightning. I think that Lightning is always going to be fundamentally lagging in that issue, uh, in, in that regard, that it is, it is inhibited at the privacy level. Having a protocol that's number one. What if one, there's just too many, what if there's too many participants to coordinate like that, right? You know, yes, privacy, it's it's hard to have perfect privacy. So if that's like your goal, I can see. But in practical terms, like I could absolutely kind of see how it would be difficult to coordinate all the participants of an open source network, a permissionless open source network, and get them to spill the beans. Yeah, I suppose that the argument that you're making is that we'll reach some level of good enough privacy in Lightning so that maybe it's not perfect, but for some intents and purposes, it's going to be good good enough. I don't think that I don't think that that's sound way to think about this problem because privacy is such it's it's uh, having having the um, 
I think having an idea that you have privacy, that you, if you overestimate the level of privacy that you get from a system can be much, much more dangerous to you than thinking that you don't have any privacy at all. And just an example of that, I mean, we have we have people uh, that are trading on darknet, mar- on darknet markets today using Bitcoin, and they're using the main chain Bitcoin for that. And many of these users believe they don't, many of these users still believe that Bitcoin is anonymous and that it's untraceable. And they don't, I mean, they're they're just people, there's just some guys that want to buy some LSD or some Molly on the darknet. And they don't, they're not necessarily that involved with the Bitcoin space. And they haven't really heard that Bitcoin isn't good at privacy at all. And a lot of these people actually get caught when they use the darknet markets because they use Bitcoin. And because they think that Bitcoin is private, so we see a lot of people that get in that get into trouble by using a system that they think is private. So I think that we we make a mistake by telling people that for for the exact same reason that we made a mistake by thinking and telling uh, people that Bitcoin base layer was a good privacy solution, we're gonna remake that that exact same mistake by thinking that Lightning is a good privacy solution if it isn't and and i think that when bitcoin was new no and no chain analysis companies were around then bitcoin was pretty private private i mean you could transact on the dark web and you would never get caught and you could make the argument that you're making right now that you know it's good enough privacy and maybe somebody down the road in the future will be able to de-anonymize this but we don't have these chain analysis companies today nobody's doing that type of activity but I mean, that's what has led to this situation now where people are using Bitcoin and they think that they are, get privacy when they don't. So personally, I don't want to remake that problem. I want to say that you should not expect high privacy from the Lightning Network if we cannot really guarantee that on a cryptographic level. I mean, yeah, I think that, that that's absolutely fair with you know your final statement. Lightning isn't a blockchain, though, so it is you know not a one-to-one example there. But don't want to get super hung up there. I did kind of interrupt you a little bit when I asked for examples of the privacy attack vectors, but you were going to bring up a third reason why you kind of are, you know, kind of bearish or skeptical in Lightning. Do you do you still have that in your head? I think that there are some user experience challenges of using the Lightning network. Like using Lightning is fundamentally more tricky than using base layer Bitcoin. Like for instance, if I want to, if I want to just receive deposits from other Bitcoin users to an address that I have, then it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty easy in, this, in, in the Bitcoin system, right? You just post an address and then you can get tra- transactions from all over, the, all over the world to that, to that address that you've posted. Whereas in Lightning, in order, in order for you to receive those transactions, you number A, you need to have one Lightning node that is online that is receiving these transactions in an interactive manner all the time. So a node needs to be online in order for you to be able to accept transactions. And you need to have inbound liquidity uh, to facilitate all those payments. So let's say that you're, I mean, you want to you want to take in donations and then your donation address that you put out there goes viral and you become super popular and people from all over the world are trying to deposit to you. And you could have potentially received you know, millions just because the internet thought that you were a worthy cause to donate to. But because you were using Lightning, then you ran into liquidity problems. And then unless your wallet can provide you with more liquidity as you go, which they might in the future, if they're really, really good at, at channel management. But if somebody else is doing that inbound liquidity management for you, then that sort of puts you in a custodial re- relationship with your wallet. If you're not doing your own channel channel management, then you're not using the system in a really trustless way. So I think that, like, why would you, if if we are being pushed towards trusted relationships with our Lightning service providers, and we're not getting the advantages of Lightning, why would we accept the lightning fees to be high in that system why would we accept the privacy to not be perfect like why are we bothering with the why are we bothering with the lightning system at all if we're not getting the properties that we expect from it i think that if we are going to make trade offs in terms of the trustlessness guarantees that we want to get from the lightning system then there are funda- then there are other fundamental systems that don't have the same privacy 
same privacy issues, that don't have the same inbound liquidity problems, that don't have the issue where you're just not connected to your endpoint in the system and the, you can't, I mean, your, your, your payment just can't reach that other guy because you just don't have enough connections between you. And where you don't have the security issues that comes with Lightning in, in terms of you having to run an online service in order to process transactions. So I think that we are sacrificing so much in Lightning. I mean, the, the in terms of the UX, in terms of privacy, in terms of security. And at the end of the day, in order in order for the user experience to end up being good for the people that use the system, I think that they're going to be using the system in a not trustless way. So why did they make all these sacrifices if they didn't get the advantages that they wanted? So I think that that's pretty much, yeah, that's my third issue is that we have to make a lot of sacrifice in Lightning to attain the qualities that we want to have. But most people are going to prefer having good user experience, and then they're going to give those same properties away. So we put ourselves in a super complex system where we don't get the benefits of that system, and we're just left with a very complex way to do things where we're not getting the advantages. Yeah, I think Alex Bosworth a few days ago put out a tweet that kind of had that same sentiment. He said, the biggest mistake with Lightning is even trying to make it user-friendly at all. We should have just optimized it for professional users and made the protocol mm -hmm. as tight as possible and yeah. is and as efficient as possible. So, I mean, I think that that sentiment kind of validates what you're saying. I'm not a Lightning expert here, but uh, I'm glad that you've kind of given us these well-thought-out critiques. Yeah, and look, I'm not a Lightning expert as well. And I I was for a long time super bullish on Lightning, and I could definitely change my opinion to that direction again. I'm just always trying to amplify the opinions and thoughts that I see are not getting enough time and attention in this in, in this industry. So I try to be a voice for the other side so that often puts me in this type of situation where I have to criticize the things that I love. So, I mean, a lot of people ask me like, Eric, you, you hate Bitcoin and you hate Ethereum. What, what are you even invested in? And I say, I'm invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum. That's why, I, that's why I criticize these things so much because I put so much time in trying to understand their qualities that I, that I get hung up on the, the ways that these systems lack. And if we aren't talking, if we aren't talking about the limitations, then we are going to make the same mistakes as those other altcoins make. Where, where because I mean, if if we can't look critically on our own system, uh, because we just want to maintain a positive outlook on everything, then there's really nothing that's going to separate us and the our probabilities of being successful from those other people in the market that we think are going to fail. Yeah. Again, I think that that's very fair. So uh, last question on Lightning, then I want to uh, transition back to Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then we can wrap it up. But if you could give a percentage based on your understanding and kind of feelings right now that Lightning is a system that a typical user will use to interact with Bitcoin, well, what percent do you think that that will be based on what you know now? Could you re could you rephrase like the, what, what, what is the percentage of yeah, so what's the likelihood that, like, uh, based on your understanding of the Lightning system right now, what's the likelihood that we actually use Lightning in a trustless way to interact with Bitcoin? Oh, in a trustless way to interact with Bitcoin. Hmm. I think that Lightning has perhaps a 20% chance of becoming that system that we use to trustlessly transact with Bitcoin today. And as a Bitcoin bull, like... What do you see as the path of least resistance for kind of Bitcoin scaling to a transaction level? Yeah, I think sadly, what's most likely is going to happen is that. But I don't, I don't necessarily see that this is that negative anymore. I used to before, but I mean, now if I think if I think about my own Bitcoin wealth, I'm very happy and comfortable with the idea that I can take ninety percent of that wealth and I can put it in cold storage and I can transfer it all, all across the world and there's nobody that can stop me from touching those coins or accessing that, that wealth in any way. But I'm not necessarily so sure that I am that I need a trustless 
bits and censorship uh, resistant system to transact with those bitcoins on a daily basis i think that you know i could definitely see myself having the majority of my bitcoin wealth in cold storage and i put the, my my spending balance on a credit card. So let's say I connect my Bitcoin to a credit card. Now, I'm not saying that that I think credit cards is how we're going to transact with Bitcoin in the future, but I'm saying that having a having a trusted interme- in, intermediary to facilitate the daily spendings that we want to do, I mean, that's a risk that I, I would personally be okay to take that risk. I, I would be okay to say, you know, I can endanger 10% of my wealth just to have my balance spendable in a in a private privacy preserving way, in a UX friendly way, and a scalable way and a cheap way. So if I can get all those properties of privacy, low fees, and good user experience from a, tr- a trusted intermediary, you know I would probably be okay to spend my bitcoins in that way. And I think that's definitely the path of least resistance. I think that. It wouldn't take a lot for an existing exchange to spin up a sort of a transaction service that is custodial, where they can attach other service, other features that that users want. So, for instance, you can connect your existing credit cards to a portion of your Bitcoin and spend it that way. So, the negative sides of that is, of course, okay. But if we if we if we're all going to be transacting in that way, aren't we? undermining the whole value proposition of bitcoin and i think that uh, maybe we don't maybe we maybe we don't need to undermine all of the value proposition of bitcoin if we do that because we can for instance for instance these custodial solutions that we use to transact with bitcoin uh, that i'm describing now you could have a proof of reserve systems that maintain that at least the coins that i think are in that service are there, so you can verify that my balance is actually, and this uh, this this is not a fractional reserve system. So you could have you could have, you could have at least get some certainty that these transactional layers are backed by actual bitcoins. But yeah, I think that the the the, the path of least resistance is definitely custodial solutions to transact with Bitcoin. And I mean, hey, it's still a long time. It's still super long time until anybody's going to be wanting to transact with Bitcoin in a high capacity anyway. I mean, it's we still have at least, I think, five more years of just expansive store value growth of Bitcoin that's going to be the main story for, for a long time until people are, are actually at the point in time where they feel like, okay, now Bitcoin is the main way that I store my value and I want to spend that value now. But I think that's still far ahead in time until we actually need a high-performance transactional layer for Bitcoin. So it's not an issue that we perhaps need to address right away. And there's a long time to develop competing solutions to Lightning. So uh, I think there's a good place to pivot back to kind of like the cognitive dissidence of Ethereans and Bitcoiners collectively. Because I think that both groups kind of have some serious cognitive dissidence to each other's technology and narratives. And I think a lot of Ethereans would listen to you talking about plugging Bitcoin onto a MasterCard as the path of least resistance to scaling and kind of like throwing up in their mouth a little bit saying like, you know, how could you have, you know, decentralized money without decentralized banking and finance and that functionality? That's why we need DeFi. I mean, I obviously I think that that's a very unnuanced tank and I don't really see how Ethereum is scaling in any way either. But I'm kind of curious, like, you know, you've gone deep on both of these, you know, communities, technologies and philosophies. Like, can you kind of address, you know, both in the context of each other and maybe even address some of the cognitive dissonance on both sides? Mm. Yeah, so when I'm saying that the path, the path of least resistance is going to be probably using custodial solutions to transact with bitcoin i mean that's that doesn't exclude that doesn't exclude the notion that those people who do want censorship resistant transactions and people who do want to make payments in a in a privacy preserving censorship resistant preserving way i mean there are still going to be other systems where you can do that and for instance one of the experiments that i was trying to popularized a few months ago was the uh, Z, the TBTC ZK Zinc torch. So that's um, 
now this uh, this this is um, the perhaps comes on strange now because you think that ethereum is not going to have any way to scale i think that the the roll up technologies on ethereum specifically the zk roll up technologies on ethereum are going to allow rather scalable methods to transact with cryptocurrency you you have uh, what what you you can use zero knowledge proofs in two different ways one of the one of those ways is to aggregate transactions and the second way is to anonymize transactions and in a roll in a roll up you can theoretically do both at the same time now with the zk roll up that we have on ethereum today the only thing that it does is it aggregates uh, transactions and it doesn't provide any privacy yet but i think in the future let's say one or two years from now we're definitely going to have rollups that combine both of these properties and so if if you want to make bitcoin payments in a scalable way that uh, preserves your privacy and your censorship resistance and let's say that lightning fails for some reason to deliver on that for perhaps some of the reasons that i was talking about previously then you can use bitcoin synthetics so tbtc uh, that's the uh, uh, trustless uh, peg well it's not 100% trustless but it's as trustless as we have been able to create any type of derivative in using this system uh, using these uh, systems so you can put a tbtc derivative and you can put it into those layer 2 uh, ethereum solutions and you can you can benefit from those properties that you that you get that you can get low fees and you can get good privacy and you don't have those user experience challenges where you need to be always online or you need to have inbound liquidity in order to process the payments so i think that you know i think that ethereum is is uh, super interesting that it's going to facilitate a platform for for those people that want an alternative to the custodial relationships that i just described if lightning is fundamentally incapable of delivering that then i think that sidechains are the next alternative where we can achieve exactly those goals that i've been describing and ethereum is a sidechain to bitcoin can be or it can be viewed as that it's not necessarily the only sidechain where we can do those types of transactions you could you could make the argument that we're we're going to see that type of activity on a rootstock sidechain to Bitcoin or a drive chain, uh, one of, the, one of uh, Polsterworks inventions that a drive chain is going to facilitate that type of innovation on, on Bitcoin. And for me, like I fundamentally, I don't, I don't care. It, we could do it on Ethereum. We could do it on a uh, on a drive chain. We, we could do it on, uh, on rootstock. Uh, whatever system provides the best tools uh, for that, uh, then I'm happy to go with it. And Right now, it's too early to say which one of those solutions are going to uh, be the most successful. But there are different paths. And just because I'm saying that most people are probably going to be happy with the custodial relationship, that doesn't mean that the idea of Bitcoin is dead. I mean, it, it just means that if you are a person that, that prioritizes other properties, then you're going to have to use other systems. And there's no reason why these systems can't interoperate with each other. I mean, like... A custodial. If 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 most of the people are transacting with Bitcoin custodially, then there's no reason why they wouldn't accept payment from a zk rollup on Ethereum if they if they wanted to. That could be a super easy for them to implement that and have that as a, a payment option on their on their uh, centralized payment alternative. So I think that these visions aren't exclu- uh, exclusive in any in any way, and I think. One of the one of the mega trends that I predict that we're probably going to see in the cryptocurrency space in the next couple of years is that I think that there are people who want bank-free options to transact with dollars. So they they want some way to be able to transact with their dollars that doesn't require a bank account, and they also want a high degree of privacy on those transactions. And I think that some type of stablecoin in ethereum is going to be able to facilitate that so that i think that perhaps one uh, a year from now there's if you let's say you want to you want to transfer some money out of your bank account and you want to put it on on a wallet that you can use when you buy things out of pornhub or, or something like that there is going to be a stable coin that is going to be i mean it's not perhaps going to be 100% decentralized but it's going to be decentralized enough that you're going to go, you're going to be able to use that tool without a bank account and you're going to be able to make transactions that cannot be traced back to you 
And I think that where we are in the world right now, where people are waking up to the idea that we want better privacy for the things that we do on the internet. And yeah, I, I definitely see that I can definitely see that DeFi can provide that 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 type of tool that I think that the, that will have mainstream appeal. And I want to ask. I want to ask. I mean, I've been very critical on DeFi on many levels. I don't want to get into my critiques really, but with ZK rollups and kind of the way that Ethereum and DeFi are constructed right now, do you see a path for scaling in a meaningful way? I mean, yeah, I do. I mean, uh, the uh, the the throughput the throughput of a ZK rollup on the Ethereum mainnet today could be as high as can be and is as high as. 2,000 transactions per second for a ZK rollup. And that's very high. So, and I mean, the technology is no longer, it's not like it was with Plasma. Like it, when when all Ethereans had was the idea that Plasma was going to solve their scaling woes. And then they ultimately weren't able to deliver on that premise. That was a whole different world and where we are right now with rollups. I mean, rollups, they are, the, techni- the technology exists, the technology is real. You can use a ZK rollup today and try this technology out for yourself. That's why I had the ZK, the TBTC ZK Zinc uh, torch experiment was to demonstrate that this technology already exists today. The scaling benefits of that, of that uh, system is real. I'm actually, uh, I think actually it's a pretty negative thing that Ethereum is so focused on their sharding roadmap because I think that sharding is something that that's when we really start to make large trade-offs in terms of the base layer guarantees that we're getting out of the system. I think that I'm much more in favor of a roll-up centric future for Ethereum than sharding the consensus at the base layer, even though that those, even though that roll-ups and sharding fundamentally are pretty similar i think that having a base layer where you don't where you're where you, where you i mean if if we use sharding then everybody's forced to to be confined to specific shard whereas in a roll up okay. at least you have an option so uh, i want to i want to transition this now cuz i feel like we could take this conversation for a long time but i want to be respectful yeah. of your schedule but ethereum 2 i've push the criticism that Ethereum 2 is really just a Byzantine attack on Ethereum 1 by the Ethereum community. And who knows what they're doing and if it is actually improving, you know, Ethereum 1 and maybe Ethereum 1 is the golden goose and they're, you know, its own community is about to kill it. Do you have a take on Ethereum 2? It sounds like you uh, haven't fully bought into the roadmap. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's permissionless system and people are going to have different ideas of what the best path is. And just in the same way that you could say that the uh, Bitcoin Unlimited, the big blocker community, was an attack on Bitcoin, then I think you can make the argument that the sharding, the sharding proponents in Ethereum are an attack on Ethereum in the same way. But I think that the Ethereum community, they're much more. I don't see that much disagreement within that community, and I don't think that they view. How do you know what the community is? It's, this is where again, yeah. I think philosophically I start to really diverge. It's like how do you how do you gauge consensus? And when is it just proof of Vitalik or EF? I mean, for for me, understanding what the Ethereum community is is just me talking to a lot of Ethereum, different Ethereans all the time. And I don't see, I mean, the way that in, in Bitcoin we sort of became enemies over the scaling issue. I don't think that Ethereum, the Ethereum communities, uh, the Ethereum community, has really started to antagonize each other based on the scaling issue yet. So it seems like they are somehow they somehow think that you know everybody in the Ethereum community just wants what's best for the Ethereum system, and even though that some people may not think that sharding is the best way to scale the system, they're not going to view that as an attack on on the community, they're going to view it as an attempt to scale the protocol. And if it doesn't provide the guarantees that people wanted out of the system, then you can sort of try to move away from sharding and, t- and perhaps move back to something else. So I think that they are 
the Ethereum community, and now I'm saying that again as, I, as if I can, if I know exactly what the whole Ethereum community thinks, which I don't, but I'm, I'm just describing it from where I'm sitting and from what, what I'm understanding. It's to be, I think that they are going to try to figure out their scaling challenges as a more unified group, and they're going to see it as a problem that they have to solve. And I, it feels like they are more likely to move in tandem with each other than trying to split away and antagonize each other. So that is a reason why I think it's not necessarily going to result in a Byzantine attack because fundamentally these people want to move with each other and they're not at the point in time where they view each other's scaling proposals as attacks yet. They are What's much more likely to happen to the Ethereum community is that somebody comes with a solution, the, the community is eager to accept that solution as acceptable, no matter which detractments it, that makes from uh, censorship resistance and trustlessness. So that end of the day, everybody, like nobody is really syncing anything. Everybody is in a, using the system in a completely non-decentralized way. And I think that's much more likely to happen than the Ethereum community actually starting to fight with each other because they are so willing to accept like performance upgrades without so and i think going into too much of my opinion and we can wrap after this but my my fear is that both of those scenarios happen they accept you know these things that compromise the decentralization for throughput and then when they need to fight they're not in position to and we see corp coin kind of emerge or you know something similar to a segwit2x that they just are not in position to actually uh, defend against. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think I think it's the, that can definitely happen to the Ethereum community that they just lose all their decentralized qualities, but they still have the permissionless aspect so that people can keep building on the system. And then you might reach a point in time where there's so little decentralization. So when the regulators come and they try to shut down these tools, they're very effective at doing that. And then it could basically wipe out the entire Ethereum experiment. But the good thing about the Ethereum experiment is that it's just, I mean, it's, it is just an experiment. And if that community is wiped out, then the people who remain that still want to do decentralized finance can learn from those. I mean, they're going to take, if they have all their wealth invested in Ether, that wealth might be wiped out. But it doesn't stop them from starting over again, learning from what, where they went wrong the last time and then rebuilding DeFi on a more, I mean, uh, on a more decentralized platform. So that, that could definitely be what happens to Ethereum. And uh, I mean, I would probably never recommend anybody to put 100% of their net worth into Ether because of its very experimental and dangerous nature in that sense that we don't know exactly where they're going to end up after they made all the trade-offs that they think that they need to in order to reach the scale that they they want to they want to get out of the system. All right, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for teasing out these detailed kind of situations. I think that this uh, podcast will be really valuable to kind of everyone in the cryptocurrency space, Bitcoiners, Ethereans alike. So I, I really appreciate you coming on. Want to give you a moment to plug yourself as well as give a last word to our audience. Ah, oh, Jesus. Well, you know where to find me on Twitter. It's ERCWL. You can follow me there if you want to see the rainbow chart. <laughs> and if you want to make me happy, then whenever somebody talks about the stock to flow model, show them the rainbow chart instead. And that's how we're going to untangle this mess that we've gotten ourselves into thinking that there's a direct causal relationship between the stock to flow ratio and the price of Bitcoin. And I, I don't have any uh, specific last words, but I think that I want to just give a shout out to the builders in the space to keep doing what they're doing and to not take my criticisms that I lay out as a, a incentive for them to stop in any way. I mean, I'm just trying to be somebody that can put a nuance and color and to make people understand the differences between these different tools that we're building. But I don't want to make people uh, stop building what they're interested in in any way. So, yeah. Let's go. Well, I consider you to be one of the best critics, and I absolutely consider you to be a Bitcoiner, not a shitcoiner. So 
you know, that's 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 where my opinion kind of lies. Very much respect you and uh, excited to have you back on P- Bitcoin Magazine again and maybe uh, even POV Crypto. I think that would be a, a banger episode as well. Eric, thanks again for coming on. And uh, to all the Bitcoiners listening, you guys can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine and uh, give us those five star reviews. We're bringing these these really nuanced uh, and intelligent Bitcoin uh, conversations. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Cheers. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.